Guys, it's great to be together um, again uh, this afternoon, um, uh, this month, and uh, next month in the Sunday afternoon gatherings. We're going to be thinking about two specific elements of church life. Two things that we're persuaded we need to have in place as we seek to get off the ground as a church, and as we seek, in God's kindness in the coming weeks and months, to appoint a full-time worker uh, to come and join us. Uh, Next month, we're going to be thinking about uh, having a functioning uh, church membership, not just turning up here on Sundays, important as that is, but kind of formally recognising this is our family, we we belong here. Uh, And this month, we're going to be thinking about having a functioning church leadership, which we're particularly going to be thinking about recognising, kind of appointing uh, elders, uh, gifted men to to lead us uh, and care for us and teach us uh, and shepherd us. Uh, as a church. Now, that might not sound very important to you. Maybe, if we're being honest, even thinking about this issue sounds a a bit mundane, maybe a bit tribal, uh, a bit divisive, particularly because we've come from different churches to be part of this project. Uh, But actually, it's crucial. Uh, In every sphere of life, whether in sports or or business or, or politics, the quality, the existence of leadership makes a huge difference, either for good or for ill. Think of the world of politics, after all, about poor old Ed Miliband and his bacon sandwich incident, which in many ways led to uh, the defeat in the election. Or if you remember back, his uh, stone tablet promises and all the mockery that he received, whether fair or not, his leadership made a massive difference to how Labour performed at that election. Or the other side, Theresa May and her relatively non-existence during the recent election campaign last year, where Amber Rudd was always being, uh, uh, doing all the debates and Theresa was much more in the background. Arguably, the quality of the existence of her leadership made a big difference. Or think of David Moyes and his short-lived tenure at Manchester United, clearly promoted above his pay grade, arguably. And, and that leadership made him, uh, didn't quite work out as it should have done. They're all negative examples, but think of the positive example of the leadership of the guy like Richard Branson, how he'd worked to turn uh, Virgin into an international, hugely successful and respected business. And it's similar in the church. Uh, The quality, uh, the existence of leadership will make a huge difference, especially for us as we seek to think about appointing a full-time worker to come and work alongside us. You see, if the church is to thrive here, one element, there are loads, of course, but one key element will be the existence and the quality of its leadership. So it is important to think about these issues today as we think about appointing someone to come and work alongside us, but also as we think about appointing, I guess, what we could call non-staff elders, uh, men from within our own congregation, get the gathering here, recognising them as uh, gifts to us from the risen Lord Jesus to help lead this church. Uh, and bring it on uh, to the next level. So that's really kind of where we're going today. Uh, I'm not going to say anything about uh, the other branch of local church leadership, that of deacons particularly, uh, recognised servants who work under the elders to ensure that care for the needy is happening and maybe help with practical, hands-on running of day-to-day church life. Not because those roles are unimportant, but just a matter of practicality that we just don't have time to do delve into all of it. Arguably, we'll come back to that in weeks and months to come, and that would be a, a fruitful thing. But we're particularly going to be thinking about eldership, local church leadership defined uh, in that way. Uh, and there's loads of parts in the Bible we could go to, but we're just going to look for today at one passage. So maybe I could have a volunteer to read for us 1 Timothy 
chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. So open your Bible up, get it on your phone or your gadget, whatever you've got. And maybe someone would be happy to read. doesn't matter what Bible version you've got. But 1 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Someone feel happy to read that out, out loud to the group. That'd be brilliant. 1 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, and with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, uh, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well uh, thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Great, thanks Jason. So in 1 Timothy, uh, the Apostle uh, Paul is writing to Timothy, his right-hand man, his kind of spiritual protege. And he's sent Timothy to Ephesus to get stuck in and sort the church out there, which is having some issues. Uh, And Paul's really keen to exhort Timothy to to get stuck in and do the hard yards to sort the church out. Uh, And the reason there is in chapter uh, uh, 3, verses 14 and 15, uh, verses Jason didn't read, but um, let's just read Paul's rationale for writing this letter. Uh, 1 Timothy 3, 14. He says, although I hope to come to you soon... I'm writing to you with these instructions so that, if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So Paul wants Timothy to be clear, to to understand himself and to pass on to others how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. See, the church is God's family, uh, his household where he rules and we're family together. The church is described as the pillar and foundation of the truth, the kind of visible entity that that holds up the gospel, that holds out the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to a watching world, so that people might be saved and added to the church themselves. The church is the community in which the gospel is treasured and guarded and passed on faithfully from generation to generation. And given how important the church is then, given its place in the mission of God in our world today, that's why Timothy has to put the hard yards into sorting this church out and sorting its leadership out, which is the burden really of chapter 3. Before we even get to these wonderful words about what the church is, Paul encourages Timothy to get the leadership right. That will be a key way in helping people know how they ought to behave uh, in God's household. That's true for us as we think about starting our mission to Kenilworth. We want to be a church that knows how to behave so that we can reach out with the gospel, the pillar and foundation of the truth to this community uh, around us, particularly about its leadership. So here are some questions you're going to break down into tables. Uh, You can buddy up with other people. Here are three groups of questions that we're just going to think about. Uh, You're going to think about for about seven minutes. Question number one, going over those verses in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Oh, thank you. Uh, What do elders actually do? According to those verses, what do elders actually do? What kind of words or phrases describe their activity? What do they do? Second group of questions, what kind of people should elders be? And what might that look like in practice? Think specifically about these three areas of their own self-discipline, how they manage their families, 
uh, and how they, what their relationships are like with those who are outside the church. Think about those three areas particularly. Just dig into the passage. Just list these things really quickly. And third one, what's the point then of being an elder? What does Paul say about the task of being an elder? What's his verdict on it? Is that all right? Turn into your pairs. Uh, pairs. Tables. Uh, read over those verses again if you need to, but just really quickly, just get stuck in. Don't, don't hold back. And I'll call you back in about seven minutes. Cool. Okay, let's um, come back together there. You may not have got through all those questions. Don't worry. So, anyone want to chip in? What do we see from these verses an elder actually does? Any insights from these verses? The kind of, the kind of what they do for the church. Any insights? Now's your chance to share your wisdom with the group, such as it will be. They are overseers. Yep. Great. Yeah, it's mentioned twice, isn't it? Yeah, it's there in uh, verse 1 and indeed verse 2. Yeah, elders are defined here uh, as overseers. People who keep watch over the church, who, who look over it to, to keep it safe from threats and who, who give warning and, and challenge and, and comfort and exhortation, who are aware of situations that need to be dealt with, they oversee. Brilliant. Thank you. Yeah. What else? Great. They oversee. What else do they do? Teach. Thank you. Yeah, that's verse, uh, verse two. Yeah, they must be able to teach. Uh, elsewhere in Titus chapter 1 verse 9, uh, Paul talks about this teaching having two sides to it. There's a positive side, holding firmly, he says, Titus 1 verse 9, to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. Positive side of holding to the truth of the, the gospel passed down from Paul through the generations, recorded it in the scriptures, received and believed by us today. Holding firmly to that, positive side. And the negative side, so that he can correct and refute those who are in error. Yeah, there's a, there's a positive, encouraging side, and there's a negative, correcting side. And both are bound up with, with teaching. Elders have that primary care to, to teach the church the truths of the scriptures, the whole counsel of God. Positively, commending and encouraging and negatively warning and correcting error where it creeps in. Yep, they're to oversee, they're to teach, and one more. Did you spot that? Sorry? Thank you. Yeah, there's some parallels, isn't there, in verse 5 between managing uh, a family uh, and taking care... Uh, uh, of God's church. Yeah, there's a sense in which elders are to lead and to rule uh, and to govern, not in an oppressive, tyrannical way. It's an outworking of love as they take care of the church. But there's to be a sense of kind of ability to, to, to kind of keep things going and, and just order things well within the daily life of the church. Brilliant. Those are some things that elders do. What kind of people should elders be, though? What kind of people do we see elders should be? Just There's loads you could list, I'm sure, but thinking about these three areas in self-control, first of all, their self-discipline. How should they be in themselves? What do we see here? They should avoid sort of idolatrous practices, things like, uh, talks about drunkenness, yep. giving to violence, you know, yep. the, the, those kind of issues. Okay. What we talk about this week, funny enough, in Hungary. Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, verse three, thanks, Jonathan. Yeah, they're uh, not to be drunk, not to be addicted to wine. Um, yeah, that's an outworking of the command in verse two, particularly to be self-controlled. Yeah, fantastic, thank you. Yeah, anything else? It's really helpful. Hospitable. Interesting, yeah, we'll come back to hospitality in a minute. Thank you, Pamela, brilliant. Yeah, you're absolutely right, yeah. Particularly, I think we're supposed to mean that's with outsiders. We'll come back to that in a moment. Thank you, good spot. Married to one wife. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, his family life is, is to be... Uh, 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 a significant thing that, that, that that's factored in um, as part of uh, as part of their recognition and appointment as elders. Brilliant. Yes. Yeah, so under these three areas, firstly, um, self-discipline. Uh, verse two kind of heads it up with this kind of opening command: there to be above reproach. Doesn't mean perfect. 
Uh, otherwise, none of us would be up to this, uh, the task if any of us ever end up being elders. But that's to be kind of irreproachable. There's to be no observable moral failure in their lives. They're to be temperate, calm, level-headed, keeping their cool in tricky situations. Uh, self-control, in control of their passions and pleasures, not driven by the desires of gut and groin, but controlling those pleasures uh, and those passions in a God-honouring way. We thought about not being drunk. Again, verse 3, not a lover of money. Interestingly, that appears in every single list of qualifications for leaders in the church. That's striking, isn't it? Not sexual morality. Important as that is, the one that appears every time is not a lover of money. Interesting. Not in it for what they can get out of it, to further their own financial nest. Well, they're quite well getting to church life to do that. I don't quite know. But hey, it's a distinct warning as a possibility. And as Jonathan says, that's tied to idolatry. Not desiring those things above serving Christ faithfully. And verse 6, not a recent convert. Uh, Why? Because they could become proud and conceited and fall into the same trap as the devil fell when he rose up in pride against his God and his maker. So there to be men who are in control of themselves in those ways. Their family life, thank you, as uh, Lucy mentioned, is really, really, really important. Verse 2, faithful uh, to their wife. There's some discussion exactly what Paul means by that little phrase. For what it's worth, my conviction is he's talking about being loyal and faithful to uh, his wife if an elder is married. Simply talking about having an exemplary married life marked by loyalty and faithfulness to his covenant promises against all the temptations to erode those things or take those things less seriously than maybe would be ideal. Verse 4 is to manage his house well, a good steward who leads and cares at home. That's seen particularly by having obedient children. Children who are not openly disrespectful or obviously disobedient to, to him or, 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 or to the gospel message. It just reminds us that there's always a connection in leadership between who we are and what we do, but between the home uh, and the church. So much so that, that our spiritual uh, forefathers in the, this country, uh, a group called the Puritans, uh, used to talk about the, the family being a little church. Uh, and there's a modern book that has that same idea as well. It's a great book. I enjoyed reading it. I bought it for my goddaughter. It's a cracking read. I heartily uh, recommend it. Uh, and it's just happening to us here that, that an elder needs to prove themselves at home first. That's the training ground, the, 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 the kind of practice range. That's the wrong image, but bear, bear with me on that. The driving range of the golf course kind of thing, where, 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 where leadership skills are honed and, and tested and refined. It's not that ch- family's less important than church. That's not what we mean. But it's, it's the training ground by which the skill to care and shepherd and pastor is first experienced and expressed. And if men are qualified in that realm, where it's really hard, <laughs> then they're qualified to serve in the church. That's the connection that Paul uh, wants us to make. Yeah, so exemplary uh, home life. Uh, and the third area was relationship with other people. Uh, Pamela mentioned hospitable, opening homes and hearts to others. Not violent, John mentioned that, verse 3. N- not, not a bully and a, a combative aggressive personality, gentle, not throwing their weight around, not quarrelsome, one who'll fight to the death for the truth of the gospel, but only for the truth of the gospel, and not for a whole host of other things that we could be martyrs to the cause for. And having, verse 7, ultimately a good reputation with outsiders, with people who aren't yet believers. Why? Lest they fall into disgrace in the devil's trap, the, the trap set by the evil one to, to shame the church. Why? Because the church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. 
That's why its leaders need to have a good reputation with outsiders. Otherwise, the truth of the gospel is laughed and mocked and scorned and ignored. When people look at the church, they go, well, if that's the quality of its life and its leadership, I want nothing to do with it. Not a recent convert. So those are the kind of things that elders uh, need to be. And it just reminds us that in contrast to lots of our culture today, we cannot, we we must not separate the private uh, and the public. And our culture does that all the way through, that who we are behind closed doors makes no difference to what we do in the public world. So you can be a serial adulterer and still be a brilliant politician. That's the culture that we have, that's the air that we breathe. We must never fall prey to that when we think about leadership in church. Who we are behind closed doors is inevitably uh, involved with who we are in public ministry. What What elders are like, who they are, is equally as important as what they do. Uh, and, but I'm, I'm going to contain myself, elders. I'm getting carried away. Uh, and the third one, there, what's the point of being an elder, does Paul tell us? What's the point of being an elder? How does he describe the office of the calling to be an elder? That's what I was driving at in the question. I'm sorry if it was a bit vague. Yeah. So, so, okay. Yeah, striking is the best one. Whoever, decides to be, whoever desires to be an, elder, uh, an overseer desires... A noble task. Interesting. There's a sense in which we should aspire to this role. Not with arrogance and pride and self-superiority, of course not. But actually, there's something beautiful in this role that, 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 that uh, if we're uh, able and qualified, we, we should aspire uh, to fulfil. Because the church matters to Jesus. And its leadership should matter to us. So, brilliant. With me so far. Just for the last 10 minutes then, 5 to 10 minutes, let's think about two applications of this for us right up to date as KCC as we seek to get started. Uh, Application question number one, uh, how might then, as it's put it on the screen here, we begin to to recognise and appoint elders as a church as we seek to get more formally established and get off the ground as a a week-by-week entity? Uh, How can we seek to begin to recognise and appoint elders in light of what we read here? We're not told a categorical programme. We can't be overly dogmatic. But there are hints. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 10, speaking about uh, not elders this time, but deacons. uh, Paul writes, chapter 3, verse 10, they must first be tested. Uh, Actually, uh, he he, he more kind of literally says, they must also first be tested. Uh, Implying that if deacons are to be tested, there's a sense in which elders are to be tested as well. Not with a kind of weird kind of probation scheme or an exhaustive kind of life-on-life kind of, kind of interview. That's, that's not quite what it means, but there's simply to be an evaluation of someone who might be an elder in the church to, to see whether they match up with what Paul writes here and elsewhere in Titus 1, for example. A period of reflection to, to prayerfully consider whether someone is fit and able to meet the standards that Paul lays down here for local church leadership. And that's important because it's worth saying that elders don't appear out of thin air. Most likely, the people who end up as elders in local churches are already acting as elders before they're ever formally recognised. They're already busy caring for God's people. They're opening their homes up to people. They're already teaching and encouraging and exhorting and challenging and, uh, and um, modelling godliness well to, to others in the church. They don't appear out of nowhere. It's, it's not like a weird kind of thing that you get zapped and out of nowhere. That, that, that's not quite how it works, I don't think. So let me encourage us, as we consider in the coming months who should be our elders, 
Be looking around here on a Sunday-by-Sunday basis. Be thinking as you interact informally with one another and as you get to midweek home groups. Who is acting in the way that Paul commends here? Who are those people who have the life skills, the teaching skills, the character and the conviction to be recognised as elders in KCC as when we formally start? Who has and is demonstrating those qualities of life and conviction that Paul points to here? See, take note of those kind of people because they're probably going to be the elders that Jesus is raising up to lead us in the coming months and years. And at some point and in some way in the future, we'll need to consider this more formally. We'll need to consider some names who are being proposed and commended as elders. And we want the members of the church to agree with that and to assent that these are the ones that Jesus has given us to to lead us well. There'll be a chance for us all to contribute to that, to hear our thoughts and suggestions and to assess where we're in agreement with these. And hopefully we will be in agreement if we listen to what Paul says here. and take an honest look around our church family and consider those things. That's the first question. What will that mean for us as we seek to recognise and appoint elders? And then the second application question, uh, which we need to tackle uh, a little little bit, is this kind of uh, challenging and really hard question. But we need to examine, though, can women be elders? Now, I don't have time to give you a fully formed, nuanced, thorough answer to that question. Uh, I'm very happy to sit down with you uh, after this, round some food, and bat it over. Uh, do come and grab me if you have any questions at all about anything I'm going to say here. Uh, genuinely, I would love to talk to you uh, and try and bash this through with you if that would be helpful. It's worth saying you don't have to agree with me here to be part of Kenilworth Community Church. We recognise there are different opinions on this issue in the Christian world. This is not the only possible evangelical position that I'm going to outline and commend to us today. Be naive to to suggest that it is. It's not. But nonetheless, this is the position as this church that we're going to embrace. Because we are persuaded this is the teaching of the Bible. And actually, therefore, is good for us. And good for the health and prosperity of our church. Good for us as men and women made in God's image. Because what we read in the scriptures is God's design for us. And we want to acknowledge that and see that as a good thing, even if that's not always easy to understand. See, our conviction is that local churches flourish best where both men and women together use their spiritual gifts to honour God and serve the church. Of course it is. Gifts of teaching and encouragement and financial nous and pastoral sensitivity and administration and music and creativity. Churches flourish best where folks use those gifts to honour God. Of course that's the case. Churches flourish best when we affirm that everyone, male and female, equally alike, is made in God's image, equally valuable and precious to him, able to relate to him, equal in dignity and value and meaning. Churches flourish best where it's clear God does not love men more than he loves women. Churches flourish best where both men and women are released into different spheres of ministry, where they can flourish and grow and make a positive contribution to the life of the church. It is not good if our gifts are being stifled or left unused. Of course it is. Churches flourish best where both men and women have a public, visible role in our Sunday gatherings. Again, giving clear witness to the truth that God loves women as much as he loves men. Uh, Having upfront roles in terms of reading the Bible or leading in prayer or contributing to the music or giving notices or whatever it might be. 
Uh, I'm very uh, personally willing to say that uh, over time, undoubtedly, the church has unhelpfully marginalised or undervalued the contribution of women, particularly to its Sunday gatherings. And for what it's worth, it's not worth much, but for what it's worth, I am sorry for that. We are persuaded that churches flourish best where both men and women are represented at different levels of church life and church leadership. Whether that's being a salaried woman's worker, particularly employed to care and build up our sisters in the faith, or involved in youth ministries, or mercy ministries, or care for people who are hurting, or driving forward uh, music, or being a missionary sent out to serve around the world, or or leading a home group, or, 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 or leading a prayer meeting. But our conviction is also that from what we see, particularly just a few verses earlier in uh, chapter 2, verses 11 to 15 of 1 Timothy, there is something about the unique responsibilities that elders have, caring for the church as a whole, giving that authority of teaching on a Sunday by Sunday gathering as the Bible is opened and God's word is heard, having the ultimate leadership and oversight. That means we are convinced that that role ultimately is only open to suitable men. It's an application of the principle that men and women are equal, uh, yet different. That fits with a pattern I'm persuaded we see in Genesis 1 and 2, in creation. A pattern that's renewed in Christ, but a pattern that isn't obliterated in Christ, but is rather renewed and fulfilled in Christ. Now, please hear me very clearly. This doesn't mean that women cannot be involved in leadership roles within the church. Far from it. I'm very happy to argue Paul encourages uh, lady deacons in Timothy 3, uh, verse 11. Um, we very want to encourage women to be leaders in the church, I guess with a small L, if you like. Coordinating, resourcing, driving forward specific ministries and projects. Under the overall sight of the leaders, capital L leaders, the elders. Uh, who uh, lead the church. So it doesn't mean that there's no place for women in leadership. That's not what I'm saying here. It doesn't mean that women's opinion in church life are less important or secondary. It doesn't mean that they're shut out of the decision-making process. No, good elders will always want to consult with and engage with and hear the concerns and input and suggestions and thought from women in the church, both informally and formally. It would be madness for that not to happen, given that women will make up at least, on average, 50% of the church family anyway doesn't mean that women aren't gifted to teach. Titus 2 talks about older women teaching younger women, for example. And we're really happy to celebrate and affirm uh, gifted women who speak nationally and internationally at conferences to men and women, who write brilliant books that I personally love reading and benefiting from. For example, women like Sharon James, who will be known to many of us here, who used to be based here in uh, Leamington. We want to affirm and recognise their giftedness in these roles. Of course we do. And yet on a Sunday by Sunday basis, as the local church, the family of God gathers, we're persuaded the emphasis of scripture is that that authoritative teaching and leadership within that context uh, is reserved for spirit-empowered, suitably gifted men. That's the position that we're going to hold as KCC I'd love to say more about it. I simply don't have time. But again, do come and speak to me. I'd love to try and unpack that uh, and try and um, explain that a little bit more nuanced and cared than I've probably managed to do in the few moments I've just had to me here. But I'm conscious maybe for some of us that's hard and difficult to hear. Maybe we need to go and think about it and just reflect on what I've said and come back and ask questions. Again, do feel free to do that. 
But let me just deal very quickly with one quick objection that maybe is in our minds. Does all this mean then ultimately that God is sexist? It's a great question. Maybe we think that from what I've been sharing today. Can I gently encourage us? I think that's the wrong category to apply here. God is not sexist. He, he loves men and women equally. He, they're equally welcome in his family, equally made in his image, and yet different in role. Equal in status and value, and yet different in role. And I don't think that is demeaning or sexist. You look at the life of Jesus, for example. He, he loved women. He, he affirmed women. He, he called women to follow him. He engaged with them in his ministry. He received financial support from them. He loved spending time with women in a right and appropriate way. In the early church, we see women prophesying in church meetings. We see them being recognised and commended by the Apostle Paul for their contribution to church life. We see them holding church meetings in their home and being involved in evangelism. There's no hint when you read the New Testament that women enjoy a secondary status or were excluded or marginalised in any way. I think part of the challenge in hearing these words come from the cultural air we breathe that says that we can only be equal in terms of what we, uh, of what we uh, sorry, that we must be equal in terms of what we do if we are to be equal in terms of who we are. See, our culture merges those two things and says that status and role must overlap 100% if we're to be truly equal. That's an assumption our culture makes. Where does it get that from? Who says? We need to recognise that's an assumption that a lot of us buy into. Is that a fair assumption? That's the question I want to leave with us. Because I think the Bible operates with a different assumption. To do that, it points us to the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son and God the Spirit, all equal in status, all fully God, worthy of divine worship. Hopefully there's no issues around the table about those issues. See, they're all equal. And yet they all have different roles, don't they? The Father sends the Son, not the other way around. The Father and the Son in turn send the Spirit, not the other way around. The Son submits to the Father, which doesn't mean he's less than God in any sense, of course not. But so hard as it is, the Trinity gives us a window on these things here and shows that it's possible to be equal in status and yet different in role. And of course, who God is at his heart and in his character should spill over into how we think about him, his world, and of course his church. So God is not sexist. Please don't jump to that assumption if you're tempted to go there from what I've been saying today. Think again about the Trinity and maybe re-examine that assumption based on what we see there. Friends, my time is long gone. Thank you so much for your attention. I'm conscious we've said some Tricky things. Maybe you have questions. Join the club. <laughs> I have loads. I'll, t- I'll tell you mine if you tell me yours. <laughs> but as we think about leadership, let me just encourage us as we finish with just a little one, one verse from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, where we read that the risen Christ and his ascended power gives pastors and teachers to his church. See, we feel our lack and our questions and our uncertainties, but we have a risen, conquering saviour who is able to give gifts of gifted men and leaders and teachers to his church to ensure that she prospers well until he returns. So in all this, our confidence is in him as we look to him and pray to him and ask for his help to understand his word correctly and live in light of it. 
And as we're thinking today, to give us the elders we need for this days and the days to come. Why don't I pray and ask God to help us think and weigh this word well. Uh, And then uh, I'll hand over to Peter, he's going to lead us through the next bit. And then, as I say, do come and ask me any questions. I'd love to sit down and chat over some food with you. uh, And I'm trying to unpack any that I've said that you want to think more about. Uh, I won't be offended if you're upset with me. You're very welcome to do that. And I'll try and uh, answer as clearly and as kindly uh, as I can. But let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you love your church. Thank you that you died for your church. Thank you that you always give great gifts to your church. Not just those spiritual gifts that many of us love, and in fact we all love and enjoy and have, uh, but gifts of leaders as well to to steer us through the, the challenges and complexities of being part of your family. And Father, please help us as KCC as we seek to get established in the coming months. Please give us great elders, we pray. Raise up gifted, godly, spirit-enabled men from within our midst who will lead us and teach us and care for us and manage this church well. May they have the character and the gifting and the competencies that they need in light of what we see here. Give us sensitivity to, to, to identify such as have this ability so that as we seek to move things on in the coming months, we might make wise decisions uh, and give us uh, those we need. And Father, it's a really difficult issue. <laughs> We've just touched upon right at the end. Please give us all humility to listen to your words, to wrestle with its complexity and its challenge, May we not dismiss it, but be willing to be shaped by it. Even willing to change our minds on things that we sometimes hold deep, deeply. If we're persuaded, your word teaches us otherwise. And above all, Lord, even as we seek to work those things through, give us unity together in Christ. We know that what we have together in him is far more important and significant than the things that maybe we would disagree on around the tables here today. May he be the heart, the focus, the joy of our hearts. Uh, And lead us on today and in the coming days, we pray for his sake and glory. Amen.